One of our earlier mentors and board members once told us, you know, there's the Moore's law of microchips, right? Where every two years, the microchip capacity doubles. And he said, there's a Moore's law of startups where your personal capacity has to double every year because your business doubles every year. So just keeping your job, especially if you join an early company, if you, even if you're just a team lead, so to speak, um, just keeping that job and growing with it requires tremendous amount of personal growth. Welcome to Doing Well, Feeling Fine. I am Boris Ebenstein. Today, I'm sitting down with Tao Tao, co-founder and COO of Get Your Guide, a global booking platform for travel experiences. Get Your Guide is a two-sided marketplace bringing together travelers from over 190 countries with local tour operators to create memorable experiences. Get Your Guide has approximately 800 employees in 17 locations. Over the past 14 years, Get Your Guide has served more than 80 million travelers, growing at a steady rate of 100% per annum, except for 2020, when travel, of course, came to a global halt due to COVID. The team recovered and continued their growth path within the global travel experience market, estimated at 2 to 300 billion USD, 80% of which is still offline. I really enjoyed this far-ranging conversation with Tao Tao, who takes us back to the founding days and drops us off with his current goals on a whirlwind tour of Get Your Guide and his lessons learned shaping it. In our conversation, we cover the following eight points. How to think about starting a business in the wake of an economic crisis. Two, we talk about two founder qualities that are essential ingredients, namely loving to build and be having a high tolerance, not so much for risk, but for uncertainty and not knowing for a long time whether what you're building truly has product market fit, especially if you're trying a model that doesn't exist. Three, how to pivot from a C2C approach, think peer-to-peer -peer couch surfing, to a more quality assured and reliable B2C platform. Four, we cover some of Tao's favorite maxims, drawing on Steve Jobs, Jeff Bezos, and Jack Ma, as we talk about life advice such as not living someone else's life or a template for success, applying a regret minimization framework, imagining whether your 60-year-old self would regret what you're presently considering, and solving for learning in your 20s, building in your 30s, and harvesting in your 40s. I'll let you guess who famously said what. We talk about how to shape organizational culture through values and principles. Pro tip, make them 80% about what you are today and 20% about what you seek to become. We also talk about how not to do it. Six, we discuss Moore's Law of Startups and how high growth settings require personal development to keep pace with the business. Even as you retain your job title, you constantly operate with increased scope and basically requalify for your role. On this, Tao shares his cascade of ever-increasing managerial growth, ranging from managing a direct report to a team, then on to shaping management systems that scale beyond individuals, then on to shaping culture, as in collective norms and values that shape decision-making, and then to setting corporate strategy and beyond. Finally, we discuss strategy under uncertainty and how to make those tricky 51-49 decisions, injecting creativity and courage. Here is Doing Well, Feeling Fine with Tao Tao. Wonderful. So Tao, thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, Boris. Uh, Boris, gl uh, glad to be here. Thank you. Um, let's jump right in. I know you're on a tight schedule uh, and we'll, we'll stay close to time. So who is Tao Tao in his own words? It's uh, starting with the easiest question, uh, w which is also quite deep. Um, so every year I feel like I discover a new Tao Tao. Um, the, the hard facts would be, so Tao Tao is, uh, is a guy from, from originally from Beijing, China, who moved to Germany when he was six years old and um, went to high school in Germany and a little bit in the U.S. 
studied physics in Switzerland, which he didn't finish, um, but he did finish an economics degree and then started Get Your Guide, which is his first and only job. So he's not very good at interviewing because he's never had to apply for a job, but uh, did one internship uh, at Siemens where there's a funny story, which maybe I can tell later. I'm sure we'll get to it. I think your credentials are also in order. You built a pretty successful company. Could you give us a few of the parameters just so people understand the basics of the company? So how, how big is the company? Uh, it's still privately held, if I'm not mistaken. Mm -hmm. And maybe you could talk a little, to the extent you're comfortable sharing, about its growth rates and how big it got, how quickly, how many employees and so on. Yeah, of course. So the company that we founded together with originally five founders, of which four are still running the business, we started in 2009. Actually, we started in 2008 as a student project, and I can go into that a little bit later. Uh, but the company officially started in June 2009. So by June this year, we will be around for... 14 years, which is quite a long time. Um, in that period, we have served a total of around 80 million customers. And um, we currently have about 800 people across 17 offices, of which the majority is in Berlin with uh, 600. Would you characterize your 14 years as characterized by double-digit growth rates per annum at least? Or what's the shape of the curve, again, to the extent that you can share? Yeah, so I always like to joke um, that th there are pros and cons of travel. The, the con is that it takes forever because you only grow 100% every year. Um, un <laughs> unlike some you know, e-commerce okay. companies or you know, viral games where you suddenly grow 1,000%. The pro is that it's very durable. So if you think about travel brands, they're usually around for decades, if not centuries. And so it takes a long time to build because you build a global network effect. Um, but yes, around 100% growth every year, except during COVID when it went to zero. But now obviously going strong again post-COVID. If you drew a straight line from the beginning to where you expect to be by, by year end, uh, would you characterize the growth also as triple Yes. Digit? So, so if you if you basically remove COVID, then it would look like a normal exponential growth curve. Amazing. But take us back to June 2009. You're about to found the company. If I think back to that time, the great financial crisis is still very present, striking out on a startup, getting funding. It doesn't sound like the most viable option. Mm -hmm. Take us back to the to your own decision making at the time. Yeah. So. Maybe I start a little bit with a story which also explains our decision-making criteria or, or, or maybe the lack thereof. So in 2008, um, Johannes Reck, my co-founder and the CEO of the company, we went to a student conference in Beijing. And because I'm from Beijing, I was the designated tour guide. In, in fact, he arrived a day too early, which meant that he was lost for a day. And then when I came, suddenly the city opened up and everything was great and everything was half price as well. And so, and so <laughs> suddenly and, the whole city's on a 50% off. Exactly. Great. And so and so when we came back to Zurich, uh, we thought, wouldn't it be great to have a social network slash community slash eBay for tour guides? So uh, Boris, you could be a tour guide here in Berlin. I could be a tour guide in, in China. And that's what we tried for about a year. We found a couple of friends. We were still in university. So didn't really have a business plan, didn't think of raising money, didn't think of anything because we were all natural scientists at uh, ETH Zurich. So two uh, uh, molecular biologists, two electrical engineers, and one physicist, which was me. And we just, we just got started and just wanted to have fun. And a year into it, we realized that the model of 
what you would now, nowadays call a peer-to-peer -peer model doesn't work very well in services, especially professional services. So this is like a customer-to-customer -customer type of exactly. thing. You have a network, people who are from a locale, they advise Correct. others who are visiting, and so on and so forth. So it's like rather B2C than C2C. Exactly. So the original idea you could characterize as a couchsurfing C2C um, for travel services, and we pivoted to a B2C where we work on one hand still with travelers, but on the supply side we work with professional experience creators and operators. For example, we work directly with the Vatican, uh, which is clearly a very professional institution, um, or with major attractions, helicopter ride companies, um, and so on. And, and to your question of how do we make the decision, I think um, a couple of things, that, a couple of trades that we all had. So one trade we had is we love building things. Um, another trade we had is a very high uncertainty tolerance. So it was very, so I don't think we were risk takers. Sometimes entrepreneurs are portrayed as risk takers and, um, or in the career you have to take a risk. Rather the way I look at both career progression or any risk you take, it's more about the uncertainty for a long period of time. So when we went into the business, it, there was no existing company that did this. So, you know, in the, especially around 2008, 2009, I think it was fairly fashionable in, in, in the Dach market to look at what exists in the Anglo-Saxon market and do something similar or do the same thing outright. And we actually tried a new model that did not exist before. And so it, so it was very, very uncertain for a long period of time. But we loved building. Um, we really liked each other. We really enjoyed this project, this passion, uh, and just building things. And so the decision criteria was pretty simple. We said, look, we can build something. And if it works, great. If it doesn't work, um, it makes for a great MBA application. I was going to ask about precisely this, because when you face uncertainty, you need some internal narrative to, to reassure you. And there's two ways this can go. One is founder conviction, which is to say, you know 110%, this is the thing, and it needs to be built, and you're going to go after it. The other is something closer to what you just said, and it would be great to get you to expand on that, which is, look, the downside risk is not so huge. We're still all pretty young. We can go and get other careers. In fact, it would make for a great story and it'll prove on our CVs that we have grit, resilience, et cetera, et cetera. So there isn't really all that much risk in the uncertainty. Let's go for it. Which of the two was it or was mm. it a bit of both? Yeah, it's a, it's a little bit of both. I would say in the very, very beginning, it was certainly downside is limited. We never had a job. So I think it, it's probably much harder if you're in your 40s, 50s to start a new, com new company. Um, but frankly, some of the very best companies were started by 40-year-olds, right? Amazon, um, I remember the story, KFC famously started by Joe you know, Sanders, I think, in his 60s, 70s, 80s, I don't even know. Uh, Disney was started pretty late. So I would say definitely um, some conviction. Um, and then around that time, uh, we were very much inspired by Steve Jobs' commencement speech, which I still recommend as the number one career advice really for any... Stay foolish. Stay, stay hungry, stay foolish. But he said a couple of very smart things. And, and I think the, the first one is very, very true, um, which is uh, don't live someone else's life. And what he means by that is back then in 2008 in Switzerland, doing a startup was the least cool thing to do. It was not sexy. Nobody was doing it. People thought we were crazy. Um, the first two years living in Zurich, we paid ourselves a salary of 2,000 Swiss francs which for anyone who's lived in Switzerland knows this is half of the minimum wage. 
And so it was not cool at all. We got no street cred. And so I think the people looking at starting a company today should also think about, am I starting a company because it's the cool thing to do? There's, you know, what is it called? Hürde uh, Löwen in Germany or Shark Den in, in the Den, US. Yeah. Is it the cool thing or do I really want to do it? And, um, you know, just as it was the normal thing, you know, back then in Zur Zurich to maybe do a PhD or go to McKinsey, you know, that was a normal thing. Again, doesn't mean it's the right thing to do. So I would say don't live someone else's life was really, really important for us when we decided to take a different path, which is the path of starting a business. The other thing um, that he obviously said is to, um, you know, live every day if it was your last I wouldn't take it quite as literal, but this goes into what another famous entrepreneur, Bezos, framed as the regret minimization framework, right? Where he said, when he started the company, he said, um, I only asked myself if I'm 60, would I regret it not doing it? And so I think that that goes into this a little bit. And we, we thought, hey, you know, not much to lose. Um, we love doing this, even if it's not the cool thing to do. Um, we probably might regret it not having done it. And the downside, frankly, is pretty limited. We have good degrees. Um, we have good friends who can ask for jobs. And this probably looks good on, a, on an application at some point. So you're ready to go. Now, what motivated you? Did you start off by saying, here's the economics of building a successful business and you're working off the business case? Did you say we want to disrupt the pre-digital travel industry? Or did you say, let's start with the customer problem because there's something here about local travel advice that isn't really solved? I think we started from two angles. Uh, one angle was the customer problem. So the, the very concrete problem of Johannes being lost in Beijing and uh, not knowing what to do. And then we stumbled upon the B2C problem when we started to discover that there are in fact professional activity providers like major attractions or, or you know, bus tour companies or, or you know, boat companies. I mean, it sounds obvious, but it wasn't quite as obvious back then. And we realized they had a need for digital distribution uh, because, in fact, some of those professional vendors came to us and said, hey, can we also list and how much does it cost? And only then did we realize, okay, interesting, there appears to be an industry, it makes sense, of professional activity providers offering travel experiences around the world, desert safaris, tea, ta you know, tea tasting, and so on. And then, so there was a clear need. And then two, we did a bit of a back of the envelope uh, market sizing. And I think I do think that is quite important as well, because if it had been a billion dollar market, it would have been interesting, but not quite as appealing as what we back then estimated to be 100 billion. And it's actually roughly correct. So our uh, yeah, back of the envelope back then was 100 billion. Now it turns out it's a little bit more. It's two, 300 billion, but we were pretty close. This is global, right? This is global market size. And you already started with the perspective that your business would be global? Or did you say, well, let's get this right for Europe first? So we, um, maybe because we didn't study business, we didn't have all those uh, parameters in mind. We, we did think that, that only a global platform makes sense, especially in the digital environment. And especially for a travel business, you have to be global um, because you cannot build a, or you can, but the interesting global businesses uh, or interesting travel businesses were all global. Back then, there was Booking.com, Expedia, and those were all global businesses. So if you wanted to attach to those, you'd have to have equal scope. I also believe that Johannes' story is a perfect illustration of the use case. Now, this is obviously, this great cultural distance between his experience Correct. in Beijing. I mean, you can't, you can't read the characters, you don't speak the language, you have no access to 
even some of the authentic experiences. Pricing is 2x, as you said, so it perfectly illustrates it. And I think part of it is down to the distance and the fact that this truly is at the right. other right. side of that. You know, you'd be a lot, you'd struggle a lot less if you just walked down the streets in London, obviously. Zoom out from the business for a moment, back to your personal path. Many of us rely on individuals who unlock our paths along the way. That could be a professor, could be a parent, could be a mentor. Who helped you and how? Who helped me and how? Maybe a, a good anti-example of who helped me to realize what I didn't want to do. So the only professional experience, or I had two professional experiences, um, semi-professional. One was I was part of a student consulting company in, at ETH. And what that taught me was it is, there's very few things better in life than working with driven, intelligent, good-hearted people with integrity. That energy you have in a room that was um, yeah, intoxicating. And I think that was a big part of the motivation to then start the business with like-minded, passionate, intelligent, uh, kind people. The, the other learning is I did an internship at, uh, at Siemens, um, so big German uh, conglomerate. And I still remember after uh, week two, my boss, uh, she was great, uh, asked me to come to the office and, and, and said, I uh, need to sit down and I need to give you some feedback. And I thought, okay, I, I need to work harder. I need to like deliver more. W what is happening? I'm an overachiever. Am I getting fired? And her feedback was, I have to work less and be less proactive. And, and the reason was, and, and I totally get her, is that it, it made everybody else look bad if the intern is, is working over, you know, over hours um, or showing proactivity or delivering projects faster and, and she has to deal with everyone after the intern has left. So I get it, um, I might have said the same, but it did show me that maybe corporate life wasn't for me. I'm obviously exaggerating the past a little bit, it wasn't quite as stark, but also shows that, you know, for me, my priorities were simply on work. I just really like work. And, and I'm not saying this is the right choice for everyone, but uh, for me, it was very clear that I want to choose a profession where work is very much in the, in the center of my life, um, at least uh, for a period of time. There's something about big organizations that leads people to manage perception and appearance because you don't know the contributors as well as you would in a small team. So you have to create the impression in meetings and in these proxy situations that you're contributing and you're adding value. Here comes a person who is super driven, puts purpose and mission first, suddenly all those perceptions that other people are trying to construct are not so compelling anymore. But you knew then that you wanted to create your own version of that culture. What's it like here? Because I imagine in the last few years in particular, employees and companies have placed a bigger emphasis on work-life balance and things related to that in the, in the wake of COVID, where a lot of people have reprioritized, what do I want from life? How do I want to balance high impact at work with some of my personal priorities? What's it like here at the moment? The, the story I have for this one is um, when we started out and we were always, because we're scientists and scientists like to best practice and look at existing methodologies and theories. And when we started back in 2009, 2010, uh, Zappos was very famous for its culture. So the American shoe retailer that was acquired by Amazon and had uh, Tony Shea, um, uh, so the late uh, late Tony Shea, as well as Alfred Lin as the co-founders. And, and Tony Shea wrote this book called Delivering Happiness. And in it, he described culture and what culture is and culture being the glue, being the behaviors, being the how people do things, how interact with each other. 
and, and the values. And we thought, okay, great, this, uh, there seems to be something to it and we should have values too. So first thing we do is Google for values. And we found obviously Amazon has great values or what they call leadership, leadership principles. principles. And, 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 and uh, Zappos had some and other companies had some and we just did a best of and ranked, stack ranked them, which one do we like? And then said, these are our values now. Now that didn't work. Uh, it was a terrible disaster because um, we we weren't authentic and we didn't uh, live up to them. So our so-called say-do ratio, what we said and what we do, what we did, wasn't there. And then the exercise we did instead. This is I'm, I'm skipping a couple years, and there was many bad iterations from there. Um, was one exercise when we did an offsite with our executive team, and then with our executive team, we we um, our coach asked us to describe the five best people who work at Get Your Guide, and which is not part of the exec team, but just you know can be senior, can be junior folks. Uh, and we had immediate agreement, it was very quick, that these were the fest, five best people. And if you could, the entire company filled with five of these types, then we would be even better. And then what we did is describe who these five people are and what makes their characteristics, their values and their traits, behaviors. And that's how we and then end up with our values and behaviors. And Ultimately, they are pretty close. It sounds a little bit weird to who the founders are. Um, so very much the founders, I would say, also matched 80, 90% to those values. Now, over time, however, of course, the culture changes and the founders' relative importance decreases because as so many people come, uh, culture adapts. And I always like to say culture is 80% descriptive of who you are and 20% aspirational of who you want to be. We did a similar exercise at Zalando. We came up with our founding mindset. And previously in my life as a consultant, I tried to serve clients on developing these leadership principles. It's incredibly hard. And it takes the leadership team like the founders to spend significant amounts of time defining and chiseling every word of those leadership principles for them to then live into them every day. And if you do that, then it's a very powerful culture. I mean, for us, frankly, if I look back at some of the, some of the things I did in HR in, in Zalando, shaping the founding mindset statements was the most impactful one because they ended up living in. Yeah, 100%. What's, what's your, among your norms and values in your company, what's your favorite one? Do you have one that like springs to mind? I mean, for us, it's purpose first, ego second. I would pick that one mm -hmm. among the 13 that we have or had at Zalando. What was yours? Uh, there are so many great ones. If if I could say, I would say I would maybe pick two. Um, their names have changed over the years, but their um, their intention haven't changed. So um, I would say one of one or that maybe it's pick the two that I personally uh, like the most. So one is um, passion. So that for us is about um, high standards, going for win, going for the big market, really want to make impact, um, and and in a way, being the opposite of my Siemens internship experience. So people who have passion and just are driving for it and, and you know, want to have, have impact. And the second one that I think that we are particularly good at as a cultural uh, in the company is personal growth. And, and the reason for personal growth is not, and I think it's very important, is not about, you know, title promotions every year, taking more courses, because that for me is university. I think too often we you know, kind of confuse work with university. University, yeah, every year you get a title change, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior. Um, you get a degree, right? It's pretty clear. Or like a video game, RPG, right? Every level you get a level upgrade. In real life, it doesn't work like that. You don't notice how you got better. 
And the only way you get better is through bigger challenges. And it's almost important that you grow, especially in a growth company. One of our earlier mentors and board members once told us, you know, there's the Moore's law of microchips, right? Where every two years, the microchip capacity doubles. And he said, there's a Moore's law of startups where your personal capacity has to double every year because your business doubles every year. So just keeping your job, especially if you join an early company, if you, even if you're just a team lead, so to speak, um, just keeping that job and growing with it requires tremendous amount of personal growth. And so for, for you know, someone like, like Johannes or myself, who have been the founders, but also still on the C-level team, and in, in Johannes' case, being the CEO, the, the personal growth isn't a nice to have. It's a necessity to keep your job. And so I like to think that personal growth is something I, you know, I also personally enjoy. It's, it's, it's thrilling, right? It's the reason people run marathons. And for me, it's uh, keeping up with the demands of the job. Tell us about some of your own growth curves as the business got more complex and as your responsibilities became more dimensional. What did you have to learn? A couple of phases. So I think phase one is certainly when you get your first person to manage. That's very, very hard because humans, I would say, unless you're a psychopath, are not designed for conflict. And managing anyone in your teams, there's naturally bound to be conflict because uh, maybe you have to give them performance feedback, maybe you have to tell them, or maybe sometimes you make the wrong hire um, and it's not a good fit, not because they're a bad person, but because it's a bad fit. You have to let them go. I still remember the first person I had to let go didn't sleep for three days. I think very normal for any first-time managers. So that's phase one. I would say phase two is working with systems instead of people. So once you have you know, 50 people, it means you have managers of managers or managers of people, so don't work with everyone directly. Uh, phase three is about building culture. So we, we started going on this culture journey once we're in the 80 to 100 people because your operating system cannot be based on what you decide, uh, but it has to be obviously the system like OKRs and, and other framework, KPI frameworks um, and culture. I think the next step up from there was um, is, is definitely um, developing functional expertise. So all of the founders, um, I would at this point say, are experts in their domains. So that also requires a lot of learning from mentors and advisors and really understanding. So for example, uh, one of our co-founders, he's now a director of product, um, especially in the marketing area. So he certainly became an expert on performance marketing at scale. Um, I would say the next phase is learning about strategy. So I would actually claim that strategy is one of the most misunderstood crafts because you only really have to deal with strategy at a certain level. And when you do it, it's not formulaic. It is half intuition and judgment and creativity, a lot of creativity, and then half, of course, very structural process, structured thinking. And a lot of people think that only if I'm structured, I can be strategic, but they miss the creative element. And so I think learning to be strategic um, was the next phase. And, and we're in, I think in the, in the current phase where it's about you know starting to manage a company beyond 1,000 people, and that ha brings its own unique challenges, I think I can do the synthesis probably when you ask me again in a year. Let's go back to strategy and strategy under uncertainty. So the year is 2020. You know where this is going. It's Q1. We're, we're all grounded. There's no travel. I would imagine you developed several scenarios for how to go from here. Take us back to that time. What was your thinking? What were your options? How did you decide what to do? And how did you face the company? 
Yeah, so that was a fun time. Um, so February 2020 was an amazing month, I think, for a lot of tech companies. We had 120% growth year on year. Uh, we heard about this virus in Asia uh, from China. So my mom actually came back in January. She was like, oh, my God, it's like it's terrible. And I was like, okay, you're overreacting. And, well, she was not. And um, by end of March, uh, when, when we got the news from Italy and we sent everyone home, and at, I think by April, basically, revenue was zero. Well, we had something like two bookings a day in, like, New Zealand or something. So, um, so the way we thought about it, for the first thing, and it's almost like when you have a crisis, you don't have time to think about the future. First, we had to think about how do we take care of our customers? Because there are customers with bookings. Um, there was money out there. So we had to make sure that we cancel. Customers get their money back. Refunds, no questions asked. Second, uh, we had to take care of our suppliers because um, you know a lot of them suddenly had zero cash flow. Then it was the employees. So how do we reassure them? How do we take care of their safety? Uh, back then, it was an unknown virus. So there was a lot of um, personal health risk. So once that was all done, then maybe two months later, we had time to think a little bit about cash flow planning and scenarios. And in a, in a funny way, it, um, you know, some, sometimes people ask, was that the hardest year? So no, definitely not. So I would say that the hardest period in an entrepreneurial journey, at least for me, I would say was more in the earlier years, because there you don't know if you have a reason to exist. So mm. it's like it's like it's like being the unwanted child um, is you know existential fear of do we have a right to exist? Does the business model work? Are we doing something for nothing for years? And by the way, there is no sharp point at which somebody tells you, "Yep, now now it's a real business." I was going to um, ask you. I was going to ask you about that because there's there is a moment, I guess, where you realize, okay, we have product market fit. This is working. But along the way, there's always glimpses of, oh, yes, this is exciting. Customers love this. And, oh, well, no, not really. So maybe this is all just fantasy. To, to be honest, um, that moment never comes because in a way your ambition also increases. So, so then now we ask ourselves, you know, can this be a, a good business or can it be a great business? So it's, it, it's only in retrospect where you discover product market fit. But there's never a moment when anybody comes and says, now you have product market fit, off you go. Even, even when you raise a big round of funding, you're like, well, let, let's see how this goes, um, and, and maybe, we, maybe we can reach the next milestone. But yeah, you never quite have product market fit, and that is much harder to deal with and than a virus, because with the virus, we said, okay, well, there's essentially three, four scenarios. Scenario one is quick flu, this is over, okay, back to normal, we didn't expect that. Um, very early on, economists wrote basically, you know, a quarter of the people will be infected, this is in... They wrote this in March 2020, so quite prescient. Scenario two is we'll take a year or two, which I think ended up it being. Scenario three is um, uh, we all die. And then, well, in this case, our business is the least of our worries. So, so I think for us it was, or, or scenario four, it takes like three, four, five years, in which case it would have been very, very slow tough. Slow recovery. Very slow long recovery. Long burn rate. Yeah. I think that would have been tough. And what we then decided is basically take the strategy that maximizes optionality. So um, we fought, had the good fortune and luck that we raised a, a big funding round just prior to that. So in December 2019, we closed a large funding round. Um, that kind of saved us. So one learning if you start a business is don't raise when you need to, but raise when you can um, and, and you, because you will, you will use it anyway. And then be prudent with your resources. And exactly, and that's super important. And then be prudent because I've yet to see a company that raises a Series A 
that didn't end up overspending and regretting it at some to some degree. Everybody does it. We did it. And it was the only non-COVID-related uh, larger layoff, I think, of 10% we did in 2013 um, because we just overspent. But that's that's a different story. Let's come back to your customers for a second in this question of product market fit because it's incredibly hard to achieve something that customers love. Many ideas sound good on paper, then you get started, then you realize, well, actually, there's a few people who are sort of meh about it. Maybe there's a small core who love it, but it's, and maybe it's even a good business, but it's not a great large business. So what were one or two key insights about your customers that you locked in on and that then helped you to grow? Very good question. You know, when you listen to these American podcasts, they always say, wow, there's the magical moment. You have to create the wow moments. And it's like, I always wonder how much of that is PR versus real because reality is much more messy, right? Um, so I think for us, it was a couple of insights. One insight is just us using it um, because we're, we're avid travelers and the pain of discovering what to do in a certain destination we just know is so big. And I think another insight was, um, so we did a lot of customer um, service rotations up to this day. So I do it uh, once every two months. I sit in customer service, listen to all the calls, uh, do calls and emails myself and chats. And, and listening to the problems people have, even with our highly structured product, and make me understand what the alternative would have been. Um, and three, you know, in every company, and I think this is maybe a more more um, digestible insight, is you have early super customers. And these are customers who overuse your product and just absolutely love it. I still remember in 20, this is maybe seven years ago, we had a customer, we, we, you know, we wanted to invite some customers for a panel for our company party. And I went to the database and looked for customers with the most bookings. And there was a guy who did 120 bookings in a year. I was like, well, all right, of, okay, cool. So every third of, day he's like, exactly. let's do so, some activities. First of all, who has so much vacation? Yeah, I mean, he was basically a guy who was just, you know, between jobs, wife was pregnant, so he wanted to uh, travel with her the world before they would take a baby break for two, three years. And, and, and he said, you know, I even look for locations based on where you guys have inventory, and I book everything from you, and it's amazing. So I think those early super customers, and then, of course, you need to apply some judgment of whether that can be multiplied or whether it's a one-off. I got to ask you, about some of your inventory, now that you mention it, and some of your assortment. Because personally, I was also involved in planning assortment and trying to build something for customers that was differentiated and interesting and that could compete on engagement and inspiration, not just on, well, we have the thing you're looking for and we have a, an attractive price. One of the things I saw you offer is this really emotional pre-sunrise visit of the Sistine Chapel. You're walking around the Vatican. The um, the, the, the master key warden of the Vatican personally unlocks the, the rooms for you. And then you get to visit all these wonderful places and there are no tourists. And then the sun rises and it's like majestic. So what's the role of this kind of an experience? Is it about building the assortment from the top so that it drives engagement and traffic? And ultimately it's for the select few, but it allows you to tell this amazing story of transformation during travel? Or do you want to take something like this and then scale it and make it available for many, many more people than the few that can go before sunrise? Yeah, so I would say the, the goal of that product is, is, is twofold. Um, one is definitely to tell a story. So this is not a scalable product. Uh, by definition, this guy can only take one group per day and he, he doesn't do it every day. 
um, so it's not very scalable, uh, but it's accessible. And so one part is definitely telling the story and, and using this kind of hero inventory to tell it. The other part is we definitely want to add a lot more of these because these things are sometimes already accessible in some shape or form, but people don't know it. So part of it is really just making it available to the, to the broader audience and saying, you know, you don't have to go to a luxury, ultra high-end travel agent who only knows about these things. But, you know, we want to democratize the access to these uh, unforgettable experiences. I imagine that the supply side is very fragmented and that there are very small local players all over the place. Some might be slightly bigger operators as far as the comparison set is concerned, other tour operators. But by and large, these are not global brands like in fashion, which is so obviously led by the global super brands. How do you do quality control in a fragmented market where you basically have infinite local suppliers? Yeah, so it's, it's definitely a question that also investors ask because it could be a potential uh, liability issue. And, and what we always educated our um, investor base on and shareholders is this is a very, very um, a big misconception that this is only amateurs. In fact, these are very, very established mom and pop stores similar to hotels. Um, so similar folks who might start a hotel might start a, um, a travel experience company. So imagine you, you, you know, in Berlin, you have the Stern und Kreis, which is the river cruise operator. It's been around for decades, very professional company, hundreds of employees. Of course, then you have the large, the Disney's of the world, the London Eyes, the Legolands. So these are obviously professional. And on the lower end, um, smaller end of things, you have maybe the walking tour uh, operator who's been, been doing this for 10 years. Maybe they have four or five people in the office doing marketing and admin and a lot of freelance tour guides. But these are all very, very professional organizations. So yes, we have quality control. And yes, we have a lot of processes to ensure uh, the health and safety of, of people and tons of processes to, to mitigate problems and risks. But by and large, this is a this is a 100% professional industry, and we only work with uh, professional uh, providers. So you're competing on engagement and inspiration. And at the same time, travel is totally connected to people's identity. And that means that there are some things that they're really into and that they want to identify with. Could be the bespoke Vatican visit. And there are some things that they are really repelled by. Could be the red bus tour, where you're sitting with lots of tourists in cargo shorts with cameras on their bellies. And that's the last thing you want to see. How do you organize your inventory so that it's as personalized as possible to the audience's fit? And how do you do that when I would imagine much of your traffic is first-time visitors or first-time customers who don't have a buying history, you don't really know what to show them? Yeah, great question. So as you said, it's a very fragmented space. You have all the way from iconic attractions like the Eiffel Tower to doing a you know cheese tasting or underground tour of Paris. And I think this is one of those cases where there's a difference between what people say and what people do or reveal preferences. Um, we certainly would merchandise on, for example, a Paris landing page, the variety. So showing you the iconic things to do, but also the hidden gems and under the, the kind of the off the beaten path stuff. So you have to have everything. What's funny is because you mentioned red buses, you know, some of my some of my friends who always ask me for these, hey, Tao, I'm going to you know, some destination. What are some really like, unique hidden gems? And I tell them that, and they usually book some attraction ticket, and a lot of them book the red bus. Because you know, once you have kids, it's a great way to see the city. You just sit there. You see everything. So also so much about reveal preferences. And uh, yeah. 
Yeah, that's interesting, of course. When quizzed about how refined your tastes really are, of course, you will say highly refined. It's, it's like asking you what movies do you watch? Of course, I watch Swedish art house cinema. Exactly. But then, you know, probably just watch The Mandalorian. Well, there's absolutely nothing wrong with The Mandalorian <laughs> in terms of its artistic value. But I would imagine it's still incredibly difficult to segment your audiences and personalize the offer. Is the catalog personal or does everybody get to see the same catalog? So um, there is some degree of personalization based on your search history, booking history, but we rather also imagine that you may be a different mindset every destination you go to. So we do show you iconic, if you're a first time visitor, because we don't know, maybe you have been to Paris before. So we do show you, show you the hidden gems. We try to organize and give you a lot of inspiration because as you said, that is a part of our job. As this program is about people's biggest goals in work and life, tell us about some of your big goals for this year and beyond. Maybe you can focus on how the offer might be evolving or how the travel experience is changing. Yeah, a great question. So um, I have a spreadsheet for that. <laughs> and, <laughs> nice. For uh, all your goals or for how it's changing? For, for all my goals. For all your uh, goals. And I have a process for that. So every vacation I go, uh, I have a reminder in my to-do app uh, that on every vacation I review my life goals. And uh, I've uh, some of them I can share. Some of them are very. Like, one of them is straightforward. Is like start a family. Mm -hmm. um, some of them are you know um, ideally take the company public, but you know these things you cannot control. But uh, it would certainly be nice, and it's always a dream of an entrepreneur. Um, but we'll see. I'm not the only shareholder. And um, but I, you know I have a beautiful story here from I heard about Warren Buffett when. Uh, his pilot asked him, like, how do you prioritize your life? Because, um, because Warren asked him, like, it's amazing how you can control the plane, everything is so organized. And the pilot said, yeah, but I just follow protocol. You have to prioritize investments. And uh, Warren Buffett then told him, I don't know how true the story is, is, you know, write down the 25 things you want to achieve in life. Okay, he did that. Then he said, well, now circle the five most important things. That's a little bit harder because, you know, prioritization is hard. And then he told him, well, congratulations, now you know two things. One is, what are the most five most important things in your life? And two, you know the 20 things that will prevent you from achieving those five. <laughs> that's, that's a great insight. And so, and so yeah, I, I, um, I review my life goals um, you know, twice a year, and, um, and you have to do some hard prioritizations. But tell us, how will, how will travel change in 2023 and beyond? Is it about sustainability? Is it about taking experiences even more local so people go into, let's say, you know, our hometown is Berlin right now, so we spend more time here. How is it going to change? I definitely think um, there are a couple of secular trends. Uh, one of them is just experiences over things. So, um, you know, people always say the souvenir shop thingy, but frankly, souvenir shops aren't so big anymore, all right? It's all about experiences these days. People uh, love to collect experiences. They love to immortalize them on Instagram or TikTok. And so, so that's a big secular trend. Uh, and the other trend is definitely people want to um, see off the beaten path, hidden gem uh, activities. And so um, I think that's a big trend. Um, and and, and for our industry in particular, it's an online shift. So the majority, vast majority, 80% of our industry is still offline. And so, um, that does not exist in other industries and us bringing it offline, us helping customers discover those iconic as well as hidden gems, that's, that's our mission. Excellent. Now, before we wrap up, and I know we're on a tight clip here for time, a couple of rapid fire questions. Please complete my sentences. I'll say them in, in your voice. So my personal, that's you, Tao. My personal favorite get your guide experience was? Helicopter, Grand Canyon helicopter ride. The most underrated and exciting place in Europe is? Uh, Doro Valley in Portugal. 
And when you go there, which hotel do you stay at? Oh, I have no idea. <laughs> okay. I, I, I prioritize experiences over where I stay. And is there a particular restaurant or a particular activity there that you would make sure to do? So I would definitely do the Dora Valley cruise. Um, so you cruise around uh, the, the Dora Valley and then you have wine stops. So it's a basically a wine tour on a boat and it's, it's beautiful. Sounds interesting. Worth checking out. The best thing about your co-founder or my co-founder, Johannes, is? Uh, vision and determination. The three things about my diary I most want to change are? Go to bed earlier. Use the, actually do the Peloton calendar entry. And um, maybe more focus time. Seven hours, eight hours sleep? Uh, Six to seven or seven to eight? I, I, ideally eight, I usually achieve seven and a half. Okay, that's not so bad. One person who deserves a shout out and whom I never quite thanked enough is? I mean, cer certainly family. So my grandma, uh, who, who's, who's passed many, many years ago, but taught me all the values that I have. And now back to the red bus. We can't quite close out before going to the red bus. So in 2030, seven years from now, hop on, hop, hop off, red bus tours will be A, finished, B, replaced by drone flights that fly information, or C, carry on as ever, completely unfazed. They will change. Uh, a, I think they will be electric. Two, they will be much more integrated. So my my vision for these buses, I always tell, is the hop on hop off in a city is just like the train in Disneyland. So it should take you from iconic spot to iconic spot. Uh, you have perfect in-app integration. You know when it's coming. You can get on. You can sit there. You get integrated audio guiding. Um, so I think it will become much more seamless and it will stay because it's just the most convenient way to discover the city, especially of kids, and don't want to, you know, cram into the tube. Thanks so much for your time today. Tao, any final advice for those in the earlier stages of their career? Any recommendation you would like to offer them? Yeah, so one, one advice I often have is the Ikigai framework uh, that in Japanese, Japanese people have. So um, is trying to find the, the, I, the, the most optimal, not the perfect, because perfect is impossible, of four things. One is um, what you want to do, uh, what you're able to do, for which there's a market to do, and what your purpose is. Um, and, and I think especially earlier in their career, um, I would actually optimize for uh, where you can learn the most, uh, especially under 30, uh, who is your boss, and honestly, it doesn't matter what the job is, it doesn't matter what you get paid, Optimize for the boss because you can learn so much from him or her, and and that person will also then you know help your future career. So I would optimize for learning, uh, and then in your 30s I would optimize for building, um, and then maybe in the 40s, you know harvesting. And uh, this is by the way Jack Ma framework, so it's not my idea, <laughs> uh, but that's what he told people when they asked him on a talk show. Excellent, Tao. Thank you so much for your time today. Great, thank you, Boris. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode. I hope you found it useful and interesting. If you like the show, please tell a friend and reshare relevant episodes online. Please also rate and review it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. This helps others who might enjoy the show to find it. If you have a suggestion for a guest, for a topic, or for how to improve things, please send me an email with your feedback. The address is dwff.pod at gmail.com. Thank you. <laughs>